Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at the MSU Audio Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute, and joining me as always are our co-hosts, Institute Director Dr. Matt Grossman and Economist Dr. Charlie Ballard. And on this edition of our podcast, we have a special treat, a discussion that's currently at everyone's dinner table, the debt limit. Our guest will be Dr. Antonio Doblas Madrid, an Associate Professor of Economics at Michigan State University. But before we get to Tony, uh, Charlie, and Matt, today is uh, the Consensus Revenue Estimating Conference for the State of Michigan, where they will, Department of Treasury, House Fiscal Agency, and the Senate Fiscal Agency will uh, appear before a joint committee of the Appropriations Committee and decide how much money the state has to spend for the fiscal year 23-24 budget. And early indications are it's not going to be as much as it was uh, back in January, We'll still have a surplus, but uh, that's certainly been eaten away by the tax cuts that have been implemented and certainly a lot of the spending that's, that's been going on. What, uh, what can we expect overall, I think, uh, for the economy in the next 6 to 12 months? Uh, there's talk of a slowdown. Charlie, you want to? Well, uh, in a few minutes, we'll talk about the debt ceiling and and the worst-case scenario, which I don't think will happen, but the worst-case scenario if we go over the debt ceiling cliff would be very bad for the economy. But, okay, let's say that doesn't happen. Yeah, the, the Federal Reserve has been trying for more than a year to slow things down. Uh, they've had some success. Inflation is not where it was uh, several months ago, um, but it's still above their target. Um, A lot of indications that the economy is growing more slowly than it was um, a a year ago, but still growing. Um, You know, uh, and and a lot of of economists have expressed surprise that the job market just keeps churning out another quarter of a million jobs every month. Um, And uh, so for me, the the optimistic scenario is – we're still growing. Well, what I would hope would be that we could kind of skirt to the edge of a recession, but not fall all the way into a recession and, and get past this inflationary episode in that way. Um, I think that's pretty co- close to a coin flip, whether that'll happen. And uh, here in Michigan, where we have passed some uh, new tax cuts, as well as we're probably going to have to lower the income tax rate for at least a year. That's still up for debate. Uh, there are those also, there are those pressures uh, on the budget. Matt, how does that how does that sit politically as we move into 2024 and uh, a big election year? Well, the good news is we have this uh, consensus process where the House, Senate, and uh, executive branch come together. Uh, the bad news is the agreement doesn't mean reality. Uh, they are off by about 3 to 4% on average, uh, so that's why they get together regularly throughout the year to change the estimates. Uh, and, of course, they make policy in between, uh, which also uh, change the amount of uh, money that they have to play with. We're still at a pretty high level of resources. They're, uh, compared 
compared to the last few years, uh, there is a lot of money uh, and a lot of people asking for that money. Uh, and the good news about being in the majority uh, during this kind of time is that you can say yes to a lot more people, and that's usually good for you uh, politically. The bad news is uh, if you say yes uh, with temporary money on a permanent basis, then a few years down the line, you have to say no a whole lot more, and it can be pretty bad. And that's and that's where these uh, new tax cuts that we put in uh, will play a role. Certainly, maybe not in 2024, maybe not in 2025, but certainly as we head to 26 and 27, those pressures on the budget could get pretty heavy. Yeah, I, uh, I want to amplify one thing that Matt said. You know, this is still a pretty good situation by the standards of what I've seen in the 40 years that I've been in Michigan. I mean, you said. We're gonna. We're still in surplus, but it's a smaller surplus than we thought. Well, <laughs> there have been a lot of years where any surplus would have been fabulous news. Right. So, uh, yeah. But I, it, surpluses tend to disappear, and um, uh, I remember uh, the 2000 election, which was fought between George W. Bush, who said we got to get rid of this surplus by having big tax cuts, and. Al Gore, who said, we got to get rid of this surplus by spending more on this and that. Mm-hmm. And I was sure an Al Gore lockbox impression was coming <laughs> from Charlie there. No, no. I, 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 maybe I'll try my Bill Clinton, but I'm not sure if, if I can do my Al Gore. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, it's very difficult for um, political leaders to keep their hands off of of surplus money. And so I, I do think that uh, we're through some combination of tax cuts, slower economy, whatever. Um, I'm not predicting any surpluses for three, four years from now. Yeah. But right now, as as we noted, we're, we're sitting pretty good in the in the state of Michigan. Yeah. Gas prices are down. Yeah. Egg prices are back down. Matt noted there's still, still money to be spent. But now there's this uh, overlying cloud, dark cloud on the horizon that uh, we've been hearing about, uh, the debt ceiling, uh, the debt limit. And with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Uh, Doblis Madrid to the program. As I noted, uh, Dr. Doblis Madrid is an associate economics professor at Michigan State with a specialty in international financial crises, who has recently done some work on the debt limit. Uh, Dr. Madrid, welcome to the program. Why don't you take a few minutes to discuss your work and help us all understand the history of the debt ceiling and the economic impact of defaulting on the debt. Well, thank you, thank you very much for having me. I um, I have been interested in in financial crises uh, ever since I was a, a graduate student, and uh, there was always this sort of pecking order of financial crises. Um, you could have a devaluation of your currency, and then if things got really bad, you would have a debt crisis and a default, right? And uh, the United States is one of uh, a group of privileged countries that has always had healthy enough finances that it has never defaulted on its debt. And the U.S. dollar is the world's reserve currency. Uh, therefore, um, I, I have found it uh, absolutely, um, you know, I found it absolutely shocking when, when I realized that this debt ceiling uh, situation that keeps coming up over and over uh, threatens to engineer uh, a financial crisis, a self-inflicted wound um, of, of a bad wound like the sorts of wounds that countries that lose the confidence of the markets have. And things get pretty ugly when that happens. Um, and so uh, looking into that, I, I wrote a, 
uh, uh, blog post about that recently. Uh, the debt ceiling, uh, it, it's a historical oddity of the United States. It uh, came about in World War I, where there were uh, those in favor and against entering the war. And as a compromise, they said, we're going to limit the funding up to this much, and that will restrict the degree of U.S. involvement in the war. And uh, after that, now that was an absolute amount of money in dollars and cents. And so even just with GDP growth and inflation, uh, that would have to be raised. But more so at times of larger deficits, like when you have a recession or a war or a pandemic or any other reason. And uh, sometimes the debt ceiling is raised without a fuss. Other times it is uh, raised with a bitter fight, and uh, it seems like uh, we are heading in that direction again. Um, the only other country that has a debt ceiling defined in dollars and cents, or in this case in Danish krona, is Denmark. And uh, uh, in, uh, from, from what I've gathered, though, those debt ceilings uh, in Denmark are raised uh, well before they are reached never getting anywhere near uh, the edge of the precipice like we are seeing now. So the dollar is the world standard. Um, there's a real threat that uh, we could default on our debt. Um, what would that mean to the average person uh, in terms of their own credit? Would we see interest rates skyrocket? And, you know, what what, what does it really mean to the, to the average individual? The U.S. dollar and U.S. government debt are considered the safest financial assets. And so it would be similar to the ground shaking. When we think that something is safe and things are built on that, insurance companies, banks' balance sheets, all you know, thousands of contracts, millions of contracts in the economy are based on the notion that U.S. Treasury securities are safe, that you can count on principal and interest being paid on time. If that goes into question, then all of a sudden, millions of contracts go into this shaky ground where, hold on, is this going to work? Um, you could have maybe a wait and hold period uh, to see if the situation is resolved. But if those payments keep on not arriving, then there would be a massive run, a massive panic out of U.S. Treasury debt, a scramble for other safe assets. And that would be terribly disruptive to mm -hmm. the economy. It, it uh, reminds me a little bit of the financial crisis from uh, 15 years ago when, when l the Wall Street firm of Lehman Brothers uh, collapsed in September of 2008. Um, uh, one way to characterize that is it was this iconic Wall Street firm, famous, everybody thought it was rock solid, and then it's gone. And a lot, the, uh, the financial markets r responded to that by, uh, there was a lot of oh my gosh, if we can't trust Lehman Brothers, who can we trust? And so all sorts of long-term relationships between lenders and borrowers were disrupted and the credit markets froze up and we had a very deep recession. Well, the U.S. Treasury is a whole lot bigger than Lehman Brothers. It and is. so if, if that were to inject huge uncertainty and lack of trust and confidence into the system, the... Uh, 
uh, earthquake, I think, is exactly is a very good, very good metaphor. Uh, and and I'm glad you bring that up, the 2008 crisis, because bad as it was, here we're talking about the Great Recession. Uh, we're talking about a slow recovery from the Great Recession. But nevertheless, because the United States has this privileged position, it's called an exorbitant privilege of being the issuer of the world's reserve currency, you have a homegrown financial crisis. You have serious problems in the mortgage industry, in the financial industry, in this country. And when that all unravels, go figure, money from all over the world flows to the United States, leading to appreciation of the dollar, basically giving the Treasury a massive low-interest loan to say, hey, uh, you're still the safest entity in the world, so here, here's all this money that you can borrow at a lower interest than before, and with that you can launch stimulus, you can, uh, you know, you can have monetary fiscal stimulus to help the economy. It's the opposite of what happens in most countries. Most countries have a homegrown banking crisis, and investors rush for the exits. Right. They sell their bonds, they call their loans, and the government has to tighten its belt. It has to raise interest rates to keep some investors around, and the crisis becomes three times worse. Um, and uh, this is why a situation where the U.S. would lose this privileged position could have uh, downstream effects for a long time. That's, uh, that, that's the important part, right? Because um, the U.K. sat on the metaphorical throne of the uh, issuer of world's reserve currency, uh, until about a hundred years ago, but it doesn't anymore. And Pound sterling was mm -hmm. was the the world's currency, but it ain't anymore. But it ain't anymore, and so that means that when there's a financial storm, like uh, in 1992 when George Soros uh, broke the pound, so to speak, and uh, more recently last fall when a financial storm brought down the trust government, we saw that. Uh, uh, a, a former king is not the same thing as a king. And I, I think you just said it, said it very well for our listeners to get their heads wrapped around that. If we were to default on our debt, and if those investors would all of a sudden say, oh, my gosh, the United States is no longer the safest place. I'm pulling my money. Where am I going now? Um, you know, there's been some writings lately about uh, an opportunity for the Chinese here. Um, for their currency to become the mainstay currency. Um, and it might just be that uh, we lose the war without a shot being fired, uh, actually. if uh, That is one scenario, is it not? Yes, we have uh, one of the criticisms that people sometimes bring up uh, um, in this discussion is they say, well... The dollar can't lose this uh, mm -hmm. throne because who else is going to take mm -hmm. it? Who's going to take it from the dollar? And uh, the truth of the matter is that um, not every situation where there is one big mm, dominant entity where that collapses, it isn't always the case that it is replaced by another big dominant entity. I just won. Mm -hmm. Sometimes uh, power is fragmented, mm -hmm. right? So. This could easily happen. It doesn't have to be the case that the yuan renminbi or the euro or gold or bitcoin replaces the U.S. dollar. 
it could be that all of them do to some extent. Right. That, uh, in fact, diversification is uh, one of uh, finances, uh, is perhaps the number one recipe uh, uh, from uh, students of, of finance, right? That uh, one shouldn't put all, all, right. all eggs in one basket. Right. And therefore, um, launching something or, or strengthening something like the special drawing rights of the IMF, which are a weighted average of world currencies, um, is also something that actually might make more sense as a reserve currency than betting just on one uh, country's uh, issue, issued debt. But as you noted, we would certainly lose stature um, and uh, there's a whole lot of repercussions for uh, everyday people. Um, Absolutely. Charlie? Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, most countries, when they have a default, uh, it's led by, it's followed by a, a deep pretty turn. deep downturn of economic activity. That means millions of Americans would lose their jobs, and since most households get most of their income from a job, uh, that's that's bad news. Um, so, Matt, mm-hmm. very quiet if, over if there. A, if, a de- <laughs> if a default is such a catastrophe, why are we even close to it? Why is there even any possibility that this would happen? Well, these are good reasons why policymakers have strong incentives to avoid uh, the default, Um, but that doesn't mean that you don't gain strategically uh, from having the leverage that you have to force your opponents to the table. And this has now been Uh, a a clear strategy of Republicans under divided government that they uh, use uh, the threat of government shutdowns and defaults uh, to force uh, concessions from Democratic presidents. They see this as their opportunity uh, to make uh, a budget deal. And uh, they're right to see that as an opportunity. They gained significant concessions in uh, 2011 as a result of uh, bringing President Obama uh, to the table over uh, the debt limit. Uh, we did reduce spending for a few years. Uh, we did uh, then have to negotiate a budget cap Uh, getting out of the budget caps with future uh, Republican and Democratic uh, Congresses. And they're uh, already set to gain concessions with giving nothing in return other than extending the debt limit uh, in this discussion. So uh, already uh, it seems likely that they would uh, get uh, some changes uh, to uh, current year expenditures, some promises about future year expenditures, some changes to entitlement Uh, program uh, eligibility rules, uh, some uh, rescissions to existing uh, COVID funds that were uh, already spent under the Democratic president. So that is a lot uh, to uh, get uh, in response to this uh, kind of threat, uh, especially when you assume, as I think they do, that uh, there will be a deal in the end, and it's just a question of negotiating the contours of that deal. And on that negotiation, they're doing pretty well. Uh, Matt, doctor, you mentioned it, that uh, Republicans have taken political advantage. And uh, Dr. Dobles Madrid mentioned, you know, that this is a kind of a, a quirk of 100, 100 plus years now. Have Democrats used it to, to their advantage? Have there been times when they've done so? And have there been opportunities to, you know, uh, get rid of this law? 
Well, there is a bit of a disagreement on the history uh, there. Um, I think Democrats say accurately that there's never been anything like this where uh, Democrats are kind of actively talking about default as a possibility. Um, but I think Republicans are accurate to say that in divided government, we usually do not have clean increases. We usually have them as a part of uh, some type of budget negotiation. And from a Republican perspective, they would say, well, you're just saying our negotiations over increasing spending are categorically different from our negotiations over decreasing spending. So I think it's the reality is somewhere between those two visions. Uh, Democrats have used the occasion of the debt limit, but nowhere near this threat of uh, default uh, to bring about uh, concessions uh, from Republican uh, presidents. As to why it hasn't been eliminated, obviously it should be for the <laughs> reasons that we have discussed. Um, but there are people who, uh, you know, see an interest in it continuing. And interestingly, that includes even some Democrats. So uh, Joe Manchin and I guess Kirsten Sinema is no longer a Democrat, uh, but was at the time, the last time that this came up as a possibility. And here we weren't even really talking about getting rid of the debt limit. We were just talking about extending it for a sufficient amount of time so that we wouldn't have to go through the same process. Uh, every one or two years, and they said no. So it's not that Democrats, in for the most part, aren't in favor of getting rid of this. It's that they uh, haven't had the power to do it recently. Now, the story was a little bit different in uh, 2010 uh, when Democrats had a big majority and could have gotten rid of the debt limit or extended it. And there, there was a sentiment that, oh, if Republicans are going to be in charge, they should have ownership of the debt limit. And that was kind of the old politics of the debt limit. I don't want to vote for it when I'm in the minority so that the other side gets the blame for raising the debt limit, even though, as we're saying, it has nothing to do with actually increasing spending. And that was a catastrophically dumb idea. That was a big mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Careful a... what you wish for, huh? Yeah. Um, and Go ahead, John. But I, I think there is uh, an important point to explain. And I feel like perhaps it's the, if this was more broadly understood, there would be more rejection to the uh, to this brinkmanship to this threat of uh, refusing to read the debt ceiling the uh, there is none of us is saying that uh, that that debt should be allowed to grow without any proportion to the country's ability mm -hmm. to repay right uh, I think we all agree that uh, that budgeting should be responsible that expenditure should be consistent consistent with tax revenues. And in fact, most countries or many, many countries, dozens of countries have uh, some sort of budgeting rule that says there are certain targets for deficit to GDP ratios, for debt to GDP ratios. In the Eurozone, we have that. Now, they are, they are not always adhered to the most consistently. There are exceptions for recessions and pandemics and things like that. But Brazil has uh, no primary deficit rule in the Constitution. So many countries have some rules to say, watch out, because we can't let the public debt spiral to the point where we can't pay it back, right? But this isn't that. Right. This is that. These are debts that for expenditures that were already approved years ago and money that has already been spent. And now these are bills that are due now. And uh, not paying them is literally bankrupting the country. I want to, you know, uh, Tony's absolutely right that even though I think we're all agreed that the debt ceiling is stupid, 
I'm still very much in favor of bringing down our deficits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, I worry that if we run trillion dollar or multi-trillion dollar a year deficits, uh, we, I don't think we can do that forever. I think sooner or later, and I don't know when sooner or later is, but um, the world credit markets may think, wow, it's especially if, if there's this uncertainty about whether we'll repay that. Um, so uh, the history is, is interesting. We had these huge deficits to finance the Second World War, and I'm okay with that because defeating with fascism seems worth borrowing some money for. Um, and then for a generation, we balanced our budget or we came close. Small surpluses, small deficits. And then about 50 years ago or so, the that consensus began to break down. And now we've got this uh, – we're running deficits basically because we got a political stalemate. Uh, Republicans in 2017 passed what – I think may be the worst tax law ever, a major tax cut when the economy was already at full employment. Um, so, and, and they don't want to give that back. Uh, there's a, it's difficult to find enough co- political common ground to raise enough revenue to cover the things that we spend money on. And I hope that somehow we'll be able to get out of that political stalemate because quite apart from the debt ceiling issue, uh, huge deficits indefinitely just are not a good policy. And there are unfortunately few signs of that because <laughs> even compared to 2011 where there was at least people talking about maybe there will be a grand bargain between uh, increasing tax revenue in exchange for changing entitlement programs, which are the big drivers of the debt, uh, there was there's no sign of that whatsoever now. No one is talking about that, and everything is uh, focused on domestic discretionary spending, which we now have a big enough deficit that you could eliminate without actually getting rid of the deficit. So it is impossible <laughs> to uh, do without uh, a, without either changing the revenue pile or changing the entitlement program rules, and no one seems to have any interest in doing either. And the latest projection is that Social Security will fall off the cliff in 10 years and Medicare in, in 11 years. And, um, uh, you know, we've we've known since the 1980s that with modest tweaks to the benefit formula, modest uh, changes to Social Security payroll taxes, we could ensure the long-run solvency of those programs, and we've done nothing about it for 40 years. Well, and we <laughs> – yeah, and, you know – and tweaking things like that, uh, most recently, we have a good example of what happens in other countries when there are tweaks, right? French, the French didn't even appreciate uh, two more years mm-hmm. to retirement. And I'm, I'm sure many of us here in the United States are going, huh? <laughs> yeah. From 62 to 64, we're lucky if, uh, you know, you have to be, you have to be fairly uh, well-placed in the United States even to be able to retire at the age of 64, I think. I mean, there are many, many people that work, work beyond those years. So so right. if, that, if that was the reaction overseas to a few tweaks, to, uh, I'm sure politicians are pretty worried about what might happen here to a few tweaks. 
Well, they are, but I want to disagree slightly that we did change the Medicare rules pretty substantially with the Affordable Care Act. And uh, obviously that was an exchange for increasing health spending elsewhere. But I think policymakers can learn from that, that there was no huge Mm -hmm. backlash to the Medicare part of that uh, agreement. And there are potential changes we can still make to Medicare without a huge backlash. Fair enough. I should. I it would have been more accurate to say. I think we've done essentially nothing about Social Security. We yeah. we have made some modest tweaks to Medicare. That doesn't mean that Medicare is out of the woods. Although the the um, the actuarial projections say that the the cliff year for Medicare actually got pushed back a year because a lot of people we were thinking we would spend a lot of money on during their later years died during COVID. That's, uh, I'm not sure that that's a, a, a really a, a fun uh, piece of news, but, but there you are. Well, one final question uh, for each of you to answer is, A, will a deal get done? And will it be a long-term deal taking us through the November 24 election or a short-term deal? I think the question to A is easier than the que- the, the answer to A is easier. I think a deal will be done before before we default. Um, Matt, you you might be have a, a clearer crystal ball than I do about mm-hmm. about uh, how long will of a reprieve we'll get. Well, that's been the oddity of Democrats saying they don't want to negotiate over the debt ceiling. They want to have a quote-unquote separate negotiation over mm-hmm. the budget deal is the only concession they are trying to achieve is a long debt limit extension past mm-hmm. the election. So it's literally the only thing on their side of the ledger in the negotiations. So they need a long-term debt limit extension. And basically the trade-off is they're going to have to give more concessions on the spending side mm-hmm. if they want a longer debt limit extension. Uh, and so that's what they're currently evaluating. Certainly the White House is trying to get uh, a debt limit extension uh, into 2025. That would, I think, be the most likely scenario, but that doesn't mean that there won't be trouble along the way. You could see a weak extension. You could see a failed vote. You could see a new Senate gang with a new idea at the last minute. All of these things have happened before, but the most likely scenario is still that the White House and the House reach a deal uh, and it goes to 2025, but it's going to include a lot of concessions, a lot of things Dems won't like. Uh, and the White House and the House, and right now when we think of the House, that's uh, Speaker McCarthy. And it is, but any deal is going to be a bi- very bipartisan vote. Well, I, I was, that, I was yeah. going to say that uh, the White House uh, needs to be sure the Democratic left is in the Congress is uh, – willing to abide by some of the agreements that that may come out, especially in terms of some of the work requirements that have been talked about. That's been a non-starter with uh, several of the uh, progressive Democrats already. They've made it they've made it well known. So there's not a lot of room for uh, for error here. There's not. And there's not a lot of time either. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. the extraordinary measures that Treasury has been taking since this started um, actually Back in, I think, 1985, uh, they were called extraordinary because they were really raising eyebrows. It was like, oh, my goodness, we've crossed into this uh, territory where we're no longer contributing to employee pension funds. We're not contributing to a Social Security trust fund. Uh, but now the, those extraordinary measures have become sort of par for the course. 
and uh, we the the June first deadline really is could be a pretty serious deadline where uh, major things have to happen and all of them illegal in one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> and we're recording this on May 19th, and June 1st is not all that many right days away. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Dr. Doblis Madrid, for helping spark a, uh, uh, an interesting conversation today, a robust conversation. Charlie and Matt, always a pleasure to have this time with you. Uh, a- any last thoughts? <sighs> well, that's um, well. I'll, I'll give my last thought. I think this whole thing is is uh, is unconstitutional. Uh, the Fourteenth Amendment to the Constitution says that the public uh, yeah. debt of the United States quote shall not be questioned. End of quotation. Um, but President Biden has chosen not to not to try that. Perhaps because he doesn't. He's not sure whether the Supreme Court would rule in his favor. Yeah, if we had more time, we'd get into that. Yeah, question that would be too. A, that's a whole other discussion, Matt. <laughs> Yeah, this is an occasion where uh, Democrats and Republicans have to pass something together, uh, and that does still come up repeatedly, and we should uh, keep that in mind, that the the Republicans did gain control of the House of Representatives. They would have had to go through a budget negotiation in September with far fewer stakes, but some of what's happening now is just pushing up uh, what would have happened anyway. Well, that's all the time we have on this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff here at the MSU Audio Studios for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.